Welcome to the Integrated Schools Podcast. I'm Andrew, a white dad from Denver. And I'm Val, a black mom from North Carolina. And this is Race, Class, and Power in Our Schools. Mark and Max from School Colors. School Colors! Woo! Woo! We are back. I know it's summer, it's summer break. We were supposed to be taking some time off, but we had this great opportunity to connect with Mark and Max from the School Colors Podcast and thought we'd drop a little bonus episode into the feed. Absolutely. The first season I was on the road and... Like every city I went to, someone was like, have you heard School Colors? Have you heard School Colors? So, you know, I had a little fan womaning at <laughs> our guests this time around. Listeners will probably remember uh, we had Mark and Max on for the first season of School Colors, which is all about Bedford-Stuyvesant and Central Brooklyn and gentrification, the arrival of white parents into a community. We played one of their episodes that was really about this kind of idea of white parents rallying other white parents to try to come and, quote, fix a school and problems that come from that. And now they have a second season, which is also great. And they were willing to come back on and talk about it. Yeah. And this time they are in Queens, New York, which I understand is like a hop, skip and a jump from Brooklyn. Feels yes. maybe like a different world. Yeah. One of the things I appreciate about about School Colors, the first season and this one, is that you know it is really hyper-local and really digs into hyper-local issues. But they are themes that definitely show up across the country in, in various ways. Absolutely. I've had a chance to, to be in school districts around the country and it feels like it's a very common theme, regardless of the city, right? You'll have communities that may have some diversity, but the schools aren't necessarily diverse. And even if you do have a school that is diverse, sometimes you have that school within the school. And so, although this is a, a very local investigation of a current issue, it is certainly one that goes across all communities and um, a lot of people can connect to it wherever you are. Yeah, for sure. There's probably at least a little bit of New York City context that's worth laying out here before we jump into the conversation, because Mark and Max are definitely deeply steeped in the New York City context for both the season and for this this conversation. And I certainly don't know very much about New York, but kind of, you know, broadly, the things that feel important for listeners to know about New York City going in. It is the largest school district in the country, about a million kids, but those are broken up into 32 smaller districts that make up the New York City public school system. And, you know, they don't have direct autonomy as small districts. They don't have their own school boards. They are all under mayoral control. But they do have these things called community education councils or CECs. These are kind of, I guess, the vehicle for parents and community members to provide input. Uh, I'm sure that they work better in some places than other places. But, you know, the idea is if the, the Department of Education or the DOE has something that they want to have happen in a community, the CEC is probably where they're going to go. And I think most of the time these CEC meetings seem to be fairly sleepy affairs, you know, 15, 20, maybe 30 people. If folks remember season one, which was set in District 16, many of the characters that were in the season were part of the CEC or spoke up at CEC meetings. And it's actually a CEC meeting in District 28 that starts off season two. And um, it, it's a bit of a dumpster fire. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to say the least, to say the least. Uh, I appreciate that context. So I think just generally a lot of caregivers don't know how to get involved in, in these meetings. And if there's not a school board, you kind of feel even more away from the action. And so the right. idea that so many parents showed up to have this conversation around some diversity efforts, it becomes an interesting conversation. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, just District 28 is kind of embarking on this diversity plan for the schools in the district. This was happening in five districts across the city. And, you know, I think the main goal is basically increasing the diversity of the student body. It actually came out of this work that happened in District 15. It's so hard to keep track of. Oh, they should give them names or something. It should be like Fred and George and Wilmer <laughs> or something because the numbers are hard, hard to keep track of. They but, are for me. But I believe District 15 had this kind of community-led effort that actually is the end of the Nice White Parents podcast from New York Times that kind of was a, a really kind of ground-up community-led effort to look at increasing diversity in schools in their their district and um, felt like there was some positive things that came out of that. And so the D Department of Education said, well, let's do this in a few others. And so District 28 was one of the places that that was supposed to happen. And it was this, the CEC meeting was kind of the kickoff from it. And it, it did not go well. Yeah. And it makes me wonder, like, what folks' fears are around these types of meetings, um, around diversity efforts, because mm -hmm. as Mark and Max point out, like Queens was a diverse place. This was a place where it felt like the community would be amenable to making sure that every student got what they needed. And yeah. it turned out it wasn't as simple as that. 
certainly vociferous pushback Ooh, to, uh, that's good. to to uh, to a plan that didn't even exist. I mean, there's you know, there's there's so much that gets that get packed in here, and why listeners should definitely listen to the whole season yeah. of School Colors um, because you know they they said we were going to start this planning process. There was no plan yet, but people already showed up furious about their kids being put on buses and yeah. um, the quality of their schools going down and all these things that yeah. weren't even part of the conversation yet. Like had not happened at all. And yeah. I think it it really gives us all of the listeners an opportunity to unpack some of the fears that we may have that we haven't named yet. And I think a lot of people will see themselves if they listen to School Colors season two. Yeah, for sure. If you want to listen to it, it is in the Code Switch from NPR feed. So um, if you go and search anywhere for Code Switch, um, which is an NPR podcast, they are running the whole season in their feed. Really great stuff. I, there's so much in it that I appreciate. I, they really lean into nuance, um, which they did also in the first season. I don't, yeah, I don't know how many sure. times I have encouraged people to go listen to their episode on charter schools from the first season, which I think is one of the most nuanced and kind of thoughtful discussions of a topic that gets so heated so quickly. Mm-hmm. And what I really appreciate about this season is they they do kind of move out of the something that we've been talking about here, moving out of the kind of black, white racial binary and really, really bringing in other stories as well. Right. You know what I wish also moved out of the black, white binary anti-blackness, but <laughs> it doesn't seem to. Yeah, that does seem to be a consistent theme yeah uh, for sure through this this conversation yeah yeah for sure i know this conversation didn't do anything for your white supremacy headaches absolutely nothing (laughs) but the people were nice yes they were they were very friendly (laughs) the other thing that i just appreciate about the season is how interconnected they are when they talk about schooling and housing and again I, I don't know much about queens but they had me googling internet searching <laughs> trying to find out like you know what these communities were actually like and I, I learned a lot so I'm hoping that folks take an opportunity to to not only interrogate like schools and what's happening there but what's happening in their neighborhoods because they are so intertwined yeah and I, I appreciate that they they uh, again kind of leaning into that nuance like housing and school segregation are intertwined and that is like a thing that people say to stop the conversation correct oh well your schools are segregated because your housing segregated there's nothing we can do and so move on and um, they really they really push past that which is nice all right should we take a listen we should all right Mark Winston Griffith. I was born in Central Brooklyn. I've lived here most of my life. Until very recently, I was the executive director of a Black-led social justice organization based in Brooklyn called the Brooklyn Movement Center. But um, over the decades, I've also been a a journalist. I I left the executive directorship of, of the Brooklyn Movement Center and now I'm really trying to make a go of it full time as a, a journalist. Awesome. I have two children who have been in public school, private school, charter. Um, my oldest one is off to college. And my youngest one, thank you, my younger one is in high school. Hi, my name is Max Friedman. There's a siren going off coming to you from Bedsty. That's how you know. <laughs> Mark and I created School Colors together. The first season of the show was about Central Brooklyn, where we both live and work. And we got the opportunity to do a second season. Thanks first to the Spencer Fellowship in Education Reporting at Columbia University. And that's what I've been doing for the last two years of my life. Wow, um, that's great. Yeah, I have a cat that is just off camera right now yep. um, and, and you don't have to make any choices about where she goes to school i don't no. have to make any choices yeah. about where she goes to school which is uh relief which is, in that. yes that's awesome so we when we had you on for the first season of school colors you really dug into gentrification and arrival of white parents into a historically black community in bed-stuy and now you get to do a second season. And I wonder if you can tell us what's the focus of the second season and how does that relate to the first season? So the second season kind of picks up with the first season left off in the sense that at the end of season one, we found out that District 16 in central Brooklyn was going to be one of five districts to go through a diversity planning process. One of the other districts that was one of those five was District 28 in Queens, which at the time I'd, I'd never heard of. But 
in November 2019, we did a promotional event for the first season in Bed-Stuy, and a mom from Queens came to Brooklyn to our event to come up to us afterwards and say, you have to pay attention to what's going on in Queens. Wow. Parents are going wild on Facebook in my neighborhood. I don't know what to do about it. Uh, A couple weeks after that came the event that kicks off season two of the show, which is this community education council meeting in District 28, Mm -hmm. which clearly this woman who came to see us saw coming, at which 200... 300 people showed up to a room that was it's built for 70 something. Um, these mm-hmm. meetings sometimes have 10 or 20 people at them. And right. they were in the hallway banging down the door trying to get in mm. to make comment to express their objection to this proposed diversity plan for this district. So season one is set in District 16 and you've moved to District 28. So that's a move from Brooklyn to Queens. Can you tell us a little bit about District 28? Uh, it is... It's a really big district. It's about seven miles from one end to the other, which in New York is is big. Right. Um, and it's about 40,000 kids. And it, this district has been known for a very long time to have two distinct universes. There's the north side and the south side, and there is a Mason-Dixon line. And for as long as this district has existed in this form, which is about 50 years, people have said there's a Mason-Dixon line separating the north and the south. So this Mason-Dixon line on the north side is wealthier, maybe whiter, but certainly less black. Mm -hmm. The south side is poorer, more black. And something about that just kind of feels hard to reconcile in my mind with the story that gets told about Queens as being this place that is just kind of, you know, teeming with diversity. Queens is, of course, like everybody talks about Queens as being the most diverse place in the world. And they're right. It's true. So Queens is incredibly diverse and Queens is deeply segregated. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that provided us an incredible opportunity to look at that situation, that contradiction, and start to peel it back. Mm-hmm. When you were conceiving of School Colors, was the plan always to move beyond Central Brooklyn? Like, mm-hmm. step outside of your kind of, you know, home field there, so to speak? That, you know, the, the first season had so much of your own personal stories because you live in Central Brooklyn. Um, how, you know, how did you think about leaving Central Brooklyn and, and taking on some other part of the city? When we started season one, I'm not even sure we thought of it as a season one. That is, there was no <laughs> franchise in mind. Right. And we really thought of it as a one-off thing. Right. I mean, it didn't. The, the idea didn't even start off as a podcast, but it kind of evolved into that over a period of time. And so the, the theme has always been race, class, and power in American cities and schools. Mm-hmm. And as Max mentioned, when we heard about District 28, we saw it as an opportunity to do some things that we felt, I won't say limited by, but when we were doing season one, first of all, season one was very personal to us. Mm-hmm. And that was perhaps one of the most fulfilling and exciting parts of it for us is the ways in which we were able to weave our own individual stories into it. But we were also a little conscious of the fact that the story so much hinged on this black-white binary. And if you can talk about race, class, and power in, in American cities and schools, it's important to understand that that doesn't stop with black and white people, that it goes right. far beyond that. And I think for us, District 28 just seemed like a perfect opportunity to jump headlong into that conversation, to really talk about the complexity of race. And it was difficult for us to sort of leave our comfort zone of the place that is our home turf that we uh, know and love being central Brooklyn. So, we, you know, we've had to stretch and the same kind of, uh, I would say, you know, personal attachment to it is not there than we had in, in season one. But again, it gives us some an opportunity to explore some, some themes that we weren't able to do in season one. Mm-hmm. You, you talk about the sort of themes of race and class and power. The first season got into gentrification a bit. This season seems to really go head first at housing and housing segregation and kind of public housing, Forest Hills, gardens, and that whole history. Why dig into housing as a as a focus when you're talking about schools? So the, the first season actually started its life for me as uh, research that Mark and I did together while I was in grad school for urban design. So that mm. the connection between housing and schools has been my interest really from the beginning, from before the beginning. Right. Okay. And so I was really excited that this season gave us the opportunity to, to focus squarely on housing. Um, in episodes two and three in particular, there's, there's chunks of it that are just housing stories, mm-hmm. which I was excited to get into because, I mean, so many people said to us, 
And it's such a cliche as we were reporting this season, like, well, the, the schools are segregated because neighborhoods are segregated. Right. And that's supposed to stop the conversation. Exactly. And it's like a, to, 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 to us, I think that's sort of a challenge. It's like, okay, you want to stop the conversation? We're going to start the conversation there. Why are the neighborhoods segregated? Right. And these particular neighborhoods in Queens give us the opportunity to talk about that in terms of public housing, private housing, in ways that that um, both speak to things that have happened in other parts of the country, but also like directly affected other parts of the country, in, particularly in the case of the neighborhood unit, which is this this um, mm-hmm. theory of, of of neighborhood planning that was devised in Forest Hills in the 1920s that then was exported all over the country. And if you're a nerd about this stuff like we are, I really recommend you check out the the paper that Ansley Erickson wrote with Andrew Highsmith about Forest Hills Gardens because they really go through. In, in, in a lot of detail, the influence of the neighborhood unit idea on different city planners who plan cities across the country, including maybe where you live. So, Yeah, For- Forest Hills is such a great kind of hook to tell so much of this story on because cause it does really tap into, you know, the housing piece, the segregation piece, the ways that government policies recreate and sustain segregation. It, I, I certainly found it fascinating. I'm assuming that you all did, too, since you have an entire episode called The Battle of Forest Hills. So maybe we can start you and just give us sort of like a, a quick overview of Forest Hills. So when we talk about the north side and the south side of the district, when we're talking about the north side, most of the time we're talking about Forest Hills. And Forest Hills is, I would say, a middle-class neighborhood, upper-middle-class neighborhood with a kind of upper-class enclave inside it. Um, And Mm -hmm. that's Forest Hills Gardens. Forest Hills Gardens looks like no other place in New York. They, it's... It doesn't actually have walls around it, but it might as well. The street grid is designed so that it's it feels hard to get into. You can't park there without a permit, which is not true in any other part of New York that I've ever been to. The street signs are different. It's all designed like a like a Tudor village. Um, and there's this sort of cathedral-like school in the middle of it that's called the School in the Gardens. And Forest Hills is this was this planned community. It was planned by the Russell Sage Foundation um, in 1909. And they they called it an urban oasis. Um, the city was growing incredibly fast in the first decade of the 20th century and it was dirty and industrialization and lots of immigrants. And, um, the Russell Sage foundation wanted to prove that you could live the good life inside the city limits. And so they built this place. And then the story that we tell that really that the historian Ansley Erickson tells is that, um, there was a planner who lived there who was employed by the Russell Sage foundation who was inspired by living there to say, oh, this is what every place should be like. Every every neighborhood should be like this. This is what a right. good neighborhood is. And a good neighborhood is defined by a school in the middle and homogeneity, mm-hmm. keeping like people together mm-hmm. and keeping unlike people out. And that was incredibly influential. Ainsley Erickson is, is amazing. And I guess I'm con- I'm surprised that I continue to be able to be surprised by just how like blatantly racist the government policies were in the past. I should not be surprised anymore. But she, you know, she talks about this idea that the Federal Housing Administration in 1938 basically said that neighborhoods are worth investing in if their schools have harmonious racial groups. Specifically in the schools. Right. If your schools uh, a, in your neighborhood are have inharmonious racial groups, the neighborhood is the not property property in the in the neighborhood is worth less, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I shouldn't be surprised. It is yet another way that kind of white supremacy replicates itself. Mm. So that kind of sets a scene for Forest Hills, but it, it didn't come to be this way without controversy. So what is the Battle of Forest Hills? So the Battle of Forest Hills, it was a battle over public housing in Forest Hills, Queens. There was very little public housing in Queens in general. When we're talking about at this point, the early 70s. The way that New York City had built public housing after the Second World War is that once public housing became something that basically was sort of culturally assumed to be only for Black and Puerto Ricans in New York, then New York City Housing Authority just built more public housing, for which there was a need and sometimes even a a, a clamoring. They built more public housing in neighborhoods that were already segregated Black and Puerto Rican neighborhoods Mm. or neighborhoods that were trending in that direction. So neighborhoods that were already segregated, just became bigger and more segregated. And when uh, New York City got a new mayor named John Lindsay, um, who was a liberal Republican, who uh, was a liberal crusader, sort of how he branded himself, and he wanted to change. He wanted to change that. He wanted to build public housing 
in parts of the city that didn't have any public housing. Use public housing, use government housing to rectify the harms that the government had done mm-hmm. through the way that it built housing, um, which is pretty logical. Um mm-hmm but uh, encountered huge resistance from homeowners uh, in Forest Hills, led by a man named Jerry Burback, who owned a a house nearby and was worried about his property value. He started something (laughs) called the Forest Hills Residence Association. He was a real character, uh, Jerry and his wife, Sherry. And they Um, later moved before it happened, right? And then they moved before the building ever opened. I hate people. Um, (laughs) No comment. I don't know. extremely loud, vigorous resistance that, uh, you know, politicians jumped on the bandwagon. Ed Koch, who later became the mayor, uh, was on the side of the protesters saying, we shouldn't build this project in Forest Hills. You're just going to bring the neighborhood down, just like all these other neighborhoods have come down because you build public housing there. In the end, the, the, the mayor decided to negotiate a compromise kind of plan. And the mm-hmm. person he brought in to do this was Mario Cuomo, who at that time was not well-known, was just a practicing lawyer, but he negotiated a compromise plan where this uh, public housing was built at half the size originally planned, and then he became famous, and he wrote a book about it, and then became the governor, mm-hmm. and right. the father of another governor. Mm-hmm. And most people have no idea that this happened, except maybe they know that like Mario Cuomo did something in Forest Hills. Right. I will say it's about Forest Hills is that it, it's a place that people come to to get away from other people. Mm. Mm. I, I say that almost without judgment. I mean, I think lots of us make choices to get away from places, to get away from people. This is too chaotic. And in different ways, Forest Hills Gardens being the most sort of extreme example 100 years ago, but even the rest of Forest Hills still, it's it's a place that people move to for a, a kind of an urban oasis. But uh, I will say, though, I don't think people necessarily are conscious of that, right? They're not – I don't think most people are saying – well, I'm moving there because I want to get away from this. I think that they see the neighborhood, they see the schools, they see the demographics and want to be a part of that. And so they see that as a positive. Of They see the people who are there as opposed to the people who are not there. Drawn to something rather than moving away from something. Right. And it's really yeah. striking when you hear people talk about how diverse and how diverse, how diverse these, these parts of Queens are. They are diverse, but the one thing they don't have is, is black people. And so mm. it's, it's striking how people talk in terms of diversity, but, but black people become almost invisible in that equation. Oh, right. I think also what I learned from the first couple of episodes is also don't like poor people a whole lot. Can you all talk a little bit about how income influenced what you all learned? Yeah, and I will say that I, I don't, I'm not totally satisfied with how much we've engaged questions of class in, in, in this season. It's not to say that we haven't. I mean, it's an intertwined with so much. But I would say the most striking example for me of like sort of where race and class sort of come together is when we talk about the Battle of Forest Hills and you have people protesting the introduction of housing projects and there's a line that we say in there is that like it, it may or may not be black people mm-hmm. they don't want here, but but certainly they they were very explicit about not wanting to be next to poor people. Right. Right. They were insistent that they were not racist, that they right, had no right. problem with black people, but they had no problem saying that they didn't want uh, what they would have called welfare people around. Right. Right. Which of course was code for for poor and black. Mm-hmm. So that's a very obvious example of that. And and what's what's really striking about that is when. You know, it, it's something we kind of tuck in there, and I don't know to what extent people really held on to it. But, you know, after we talk about the Battle of, of, of Forest Hills, we see that that public housing project that was being introduced, they ended up building it, although at, at half the scale that they were originally thinking. But even after all of that, they still managed to keep the black people out mm. of, of the projects for the most right, part. Right, right. It was still it was still like seventy percent white or something when it finally mm-hmm. yeah. launched. Yeah. So even in that moment where you know poor people were able to make it in, those poor people were more acceptable at the end of the day because they were not black. It's okay. Andrew knows I have a white supremacy headache that flares up in these conversations. So <laughs> white supremacy. I don't headache. know how y'all have done this for two years. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I want to I want to speak to a question that you were asking before about you know talking about housing and housing policy and why we chose to 
make that a big part of this season. I think what's true of not just folks that we focus on in this season, but just all of us in general, particularly those of us who identify with community and neighborhoods and people who consider ourselves activists, we oftentimes see ourselves in a way where, we, where we're like brand new. We don't, we don't have a, a deep sense of what has come before and in institutions mm. that have been established and how we got to these places. And mm-hmm. what was really frustrating in talking to people during the season was the extent to which people had such an ahistorical mm-hmm. understanding and, and view of things. Really, and, and that's not, that's, I don't want to say it's any fault of their own, but had no sense of their neighborhood, had no sense of policy, had no sense of why things were they, 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 they are. That is, people were looking around in District 28 and just saying, oh, it's, it's this way because, you know, people are choosing to live this way. Mm-hmm. Right. With just a complete denial of how we got there. Not only that the, the past happened, but the past lives in the present. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And particularly what was, a, what was really interesting about this story was not only the history in New York City that we were peeling back, but what was happening right there in Forest Hills. When you talk about, again, this battle of Forest Hills, when you talk about Forest Hills Gardens and how that got started and how that became a model for the, the building of neighborhoods across the country. Right. Uh, you know, I think our naive hope was that people would hear that, would see themselves and hear themselves <laughs> in voices from the past and would have a broader view on how we got here. And, you know, my wow. fear is that we're going to bludgeon people with this history. They'll get bored. But it's, it, it would be irresponsible to talk about these stories without panning back and seeing, you know, we, we think of our, see ourselves in these very parochial ways, really just getting to see the world around us and how we are, are a part of a continuum. And I'll add one thing about the Battle of Forest Hills, just because I think you could hear the way that I described it and go, oh, it's one public housing complex and people got mad. Of course they did. Right. This is what white people the, do. The common story. Whatever. We have a word for it. You know, it's just, nim- it's just NIMBY right. shit. Um, it's not that surprising, except that the Battle of Forest Hills became a national story because it happened at a, at a real potential pivot point mm-hmm. for public housing, for government housing. Um, and really for the sort of the for for the liberal state for the New Deal liberal order, um, mm-hmm. in the sense that this very active government intervention in the housing market, which was the building of public housing all over the country, in New York, the the mayor and the New York City Housing Authority saw the ways in which that had done harm to people and wanted to redress that harm using the power of the government. Using the power of the government, mm-hmm. and instead, what happened is that we just stopped building public housing. Yeah. Right. And specifically because of the Battle of Forest Hills, um, as as government officials acknowledged at the time, certainly put the stop on the idea of using government housing to integrate neighborhoods in the way that they had wanted to do with the Forest Hills houses. Right. That never happened and Forest Hills became a, a, a cautionary tale. Mm. Yeah. Right. And, and 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 that's I mean I before I use the term ahistoric, but also people don't have a sense of the ripple effect and the impacts of what they're doing now on future generations Correct. Mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. far as policy, as, as far as people's lives. Right. And so you, you have to understand that when you are in the position today, you are dictating policy and practice for generations to come. And that has an impact on countless lives and countless opportunities. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so when I talk about a continuum, it's not just looking backwards. It's also being conscious of you know, what happens going forward. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that you find these, the, these people, these characters. So it's like easy to find yourself drawn to, you know, maybe either repulsed by or kind of drawn to people from the past, because I do think it kind of forces you to look at these were people very similar to me who are making decisions in this moment and here are these kind of ripple effects. And, and hopefully at least that does then push people to think, okay, well, like, what am I doing now that, 50 years from now, there might be a podcast about or a holographic cast or whatever it's going to be 50 years from now <laughs> that, that is like, you know, how what what is that story that's going to be told 50 years from now about people here? Because I, there's certainly people who show up in this season, people from 50 years ago who don't come across that great. Like, what are we doing now mm-hmm. to make sure that we are, you know, less likely to 
trigger that kind of reaction 50 years from now. There was one sassy part when you told the the anecdote about the woman who moved into the house and the impact on her um, family and generations um, about when they built the community resources and then the neighbors who were throwing tomatoes at them came over to start to use them. I was like, of course, (laughs) of course, because we all benefit from these well-designed, beautiful communities where we can all be together. Mm -hmm. There was one quote that um, came from one of the guests and it said, ah, where do the liberals go when it's in their community? Love to hear some of your thoughts about that. Well, there are some people who think that they're liberals and they're just not. Mm. Right. They're just lying to themselves about what that means. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, 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 let's think about it, though. I mean, the identification as a liberal has always had sort of... Uh, hypocrisy baked late, in. Right. Hypocrisy and latent racist <laughs> too, right? Right. And, and to that quote, Val, I mean, I, it, it felt to me like there were these parallels between the fight over the housing project in Forest Hills mm-hmm. and this fight over the diversity plan. And, mm-hmm. and, and maybe so much of that is caught up in this idea of like, where do the liberals go? Where do, where do the liberals <laughs> where, do, where do the liberals go? Where do they go? Well, something that the Battle of Forest Hills and the fight over the diversity plan and the present have in common is the the powers that be being caught totally flat-footed. Mm. In Forest Hills in the early 70s, the idea was out there that because Forest Hills was a Jewish neighborhood, they would be more amenable to public housing than an Italian neighborhood. That project was originally planned for an Italian neighborhood, and they were like, mm, that's probably not going to go so well. Uh, so they moved it over to Forest Hills, and they thought that it would go better because Jews were more liberal, uh, mm-hmm. were then and are now. Um, and um, we saw what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I think similarly in the present, Forest Hills still has a reputation as being a liberal neighborhood. Um, but the flat-footedness comes not just from the institutions, but also from people in the community who might actually have been in support of the diversity plan who were not organized. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to organize based on fear. People right. who were organizing based on fear organized very quickly and effectively. To organize based on, on you know, an idea of something, you know, positive that you want to... That might or might not work. That's like, yeah. That may or may not work. Like, that's yeah. much, that's harder, longer, more patient work. And so those the, those folks are out there. We've talked to them and they are working, but that's a different kind of project. And they were not ready right. for this diversity plan um, brouhaha in late 2019. They're trying to get ready uh, now for if it comes back. And we're going to talk about that in the last episode of the season. Mm-hmm. But the, the challenge that they face is that we're talking about when it, the, the they that I'm talking about is still mostly white people in the northern part of the district, who still struggle to build relationships across the Mason-Dixon line of the district, um, because yeah. everybody does. Right. And think of how many conversations have now been foreclosed on, mm-hmm. you know, by this resistance to the diversity working group and the working plan, not necessarily because they oppose it, but the way in which it was opposed mm. and the passion with which it opposed. Who's going to want to step into that conversation right. ever again? Right. You know, so you dig into this, like the process around Forest Hill Gardens and the kind of community engagement process and the, you know, powers that be being caught flat footed a little bit, which feels like a complete echo of where the whole season starts, which is this kind of diversity plan that all of a sudden people are showing up. And no matter how many times this poor woman says there is no plan right now, there is nobody no plan. believes, nobody there believes no her. Plan. They're like, and, and I, I think as you said, right, like people show up when they're pissed. And so like, you know, Forest Hill Gardens went through a whole community engagement process. They filed all the paperwork. Like here it is. We've done the community engagement. Now we're going to start doing it. And all of a sudden people show up and they're furious. Or you have this diversity plan where people are like, I already know what's going to come because it happened in this other district. And so they're going to show up furious. But like, what what is the what does it look like to do this better? Like, what is what does community engagement look like that actually brings people along that doesn't just cater to the loudest voices that doesn't just cater to the voices with the most privilege? Is there a better way? Certainly being caught flat footed, we, we see doesn't work. But like, what is well, that, it? What does it look like to do it better? This was yeah. supposed to be the better way. I mean, the thing, you know, the people who were behind this process in District 28 and these processes around the city believe that they were they were innovating a better version of community engagement around these issues. Right. Um, and I do want to say, and we're going to get more specific about this later in the season, the reason that the process stopped was not because of the parent opposition. Okay. And I do think if you hear episode one, you probably assume that it was this parent opposition that stopped the diversity plan, and it's not true. It was the mm. pandemic. So oh. we actually do not know what would have happened right. 
and they were right. they were making plans to incorporate some of the feedback they got from these parent opponents and keep going. And they then they did, just didn't get a chance because of COVID. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, and let me say that while a lot of people will roll their eyes at the idea of this, what had happened before in District 15 in Brooklyn that was the template to some extent, or at least the inspiration for these diversity working groups. What people were really sort of pushing back against was was the idea that these diversity groups were being organized and initiated through the DOE, right? But what you saw in District 15 is where parents came together and decided that they did not like the segregation and the discrimination that was occurring within schools in their district. They did research, they organized, they got government, they got elected officials together, and they ended up creating a plan that in many ways was a partnership between a lot of different people. Mm-hmm. And they they ended up having an impact on policy in District 15 that, again, not everyone is in love with, but some people feel is an improvement on what was there before. Right. And so there, I think, is a good example, not a perfect one, because there is no perfect one, but a good example of how people talk to one another. They even argued, but they did it and, and they, they did research and they came to an informed decision. What I also mentioned in this series is that I was on the Community School District 16 diversity working group. We also were paused because of the pandemic. Actually, I shouldn't say pause. We probably just, it's probably stopped. But there you had a, a diversity working group coming into a neighborhood that is still predominantly black. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us were asking, well, this is not for us. This is for those, those crazy white people over there, <laughs> Right. And, and yet it began a conversation about how resources are distributed. It forced us to question how diverse as a black community we, we are and, and really sort of valuing that. And it put us in the path for a conversation that ultimately was going to result in the improvement of schools in the district for everybody. Mm-hmm. Now, we'll never know what's, what would have happened because, again, the pandemic shut things down. And I don't think the current administration has any appetite for these kinds of things. But I think you see glimpses of what could have been in, in other organizing that has occurred. And I will say, you know, give credit where credit is due. There's a podcast episode about what happened in District 15, and it's the last episode of Nice White Parents right. um, for the New York Times. And something that I think um, Hannah Jaffe-Wald, who, who produced that and hosts that show, um, hits on in that episode is talking about interest convergence, mm-hmm. which is the idea that 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 part of what made, made District 15 happen was that you had people with different interests whose, whose interests converged. And in District 28, you don't have that. You have a lot of people who feel mm. like the system is working just fine for them. Right. People on the North side. And that, that makes it much more difficult for something broad with a broad base and, and grassroots to emerge. Right. Also because people just don't know each other, honestly, right. in this district. Relationships. Mm-hmm. One of the things that Jerry Burback says in, in episode three is like, he threatens to you know, sell his house to a black person. Basically, that like this is like the ultimate threat, right, to the, to the neighborhood. I will sell my my house and leave. And you see so many of the, like the echoes of that in the way that white parents often talk about public schools, which is you know like if you don't give me everything that I want, I'm gonna leave. I don't know if you if you see that kind of linkage to the way white parents continue to talk about schools from that mm. um, threat. Well, I, I will say that it drives so much public policy, right? Because there's so many elected officials who see that as a, the, some of the ultimate threat, that middle-class white people are, are going to leave, they're going to take their tax dollars, they're going to take their white sensibility, they're going to take their resources, and then your neighborhood, your city becomes a shithole, right? It becomes right. 1970s New mm-hmm. York where the black and brown people had taken over and was, was lawless. And so that's proved to be in a very effective threat. Um, and we talk about it in this season, how it's something that elected officials all over consider. And, and it's part of what gives white people so much power. And it's yeah. power that they don't even fully, it, that they never really fully appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the power that they wield when they are somewhere or when they threaten to leave someplace. I appreciate you calling that out in that episode. 
Well, I, I appreciate that you heard that um, parallel because I hope that the people who have said that to us in the present also hear that parallel. Hear that, right? I hope that they hear themselves. I don't know if they will. I don't know. I don't know if they're listening, but I hope <laughs> right? that they hear themselves um, yeah. because it's the same. It's also not just white people, mm-hmm. right? I hope listeners hear themselves in the one speaker who said, and so I didn't speak. And I was glad because I felt like I was the only person here who actually thought it was a good idea. And so that not speaking up and not providing an opportunity for other people to stand with you, right? So talking about being unprepared in that organizing space, but maybe her voice would have given other people courage. So I to hope. her credit, that woman has spoken a lot since then. Okay, good. That's good. <laughs> But yeah, I mean that is yeah, that's that the moment, and you know, like you said earlier, anger is like a powerful driving mm-hmm. force. We've talked about this before, you know. Like it burns, it burns fast and bright, and also burns out. So like, where is the moment, particularly as a white person, to take that kind of power that you may not recognize and just stand up and say, "I think this is a good idea." We are constantly encouraging listeners to think about those opportunities and stand up and say something because it probably doesn't alter the course of history. In massive ways, maybe, but maybe that is that kind of opportunity to kind of shape what what the hollow pod graphical whatever fifty years from now is talking about. Um, I like how futurist this uh, this episode has become. I'm not sure how we got got here. <laughs> There's this yeah. this theme I you come back to a couple of times of of I forget who said it, but something about you know folks just want to help the South Side, but mm-hmm. but like on behalf of the South Side, not with the South Side. That there's been this like theme of like, well, I know what the South Side needs. I know how we we need to help the help the South Side out or whatever. But it's not a in relationship with people. What do you? And it sounds like that's sort of what you were saying, Mark. Is we look at places that it's successful, and it maybe is successful because there is actually a community that comes together and says our interests converge. Here's what we actually want. Let's go do this. And then I think there's you know maybe it's neoliberalism, maybe it's kind of politicians who want an easy win. But it's like well, let's just like copy and paste that somewhere else. And if there isn't that same kind of community relationship and community buy-in, it feels like doing to rather than doing with. Right. Mm-hmm. And it, and, and it's, it, it was so striking how people were saying, look, all you have to do is fix those schools. You know, um, don't worry about mixing up kids. Don't worry about us over here on the north side. All you have to do is fix those schools in the south. And people just never saw themselves in relationship to those people in the South Correct. and did not see the extent to which their fates were connected. And mm-hmm. that's, that's the problem with self-interest. If you can only see the self-interest up to like the tip of your nose, mm-hmm. then it's a problem. But if you can see your self-interest in not only in other people growing and, and prospering, but being in relationship to them while that is happening, that is far different than what we were hearing um, coming from people in District 28. And I, I will say, in the last episode of the season, I think, we are going to tie a lot of what we've talked about to kind of national politics and things that have happened around the country in the last two years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the self-interest talk, I, I think it's Kumo, and I pulled this quote, remember we have to do this because we love ourselves, not because we love them. In the end, the only thing that works is self-interest. Yeah, that that quote was rough. Definitely encourage listeners to go listen to it. It does feel like maybe a, a, a single listen is plenty. But, you know, you have Mario Cuomo saying just really uh, appalling things uh, about black and brown folks mm-hmm. and basically kind of ending up on the side of but it's in our self-interest as white people to try to, I don't know, basically like make them better people. Um, yeah. Yeah. How... Even in, again, that liberal space, um, we are disparaging black and brown people and under-resourced people. Um, and it feels just gross. <laughs> it just feels gross. Yeah, no, that, 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 that quote, yeah, that quote was like a low point. For, that, that quote was rough. <laughs> it's a gut punch. Yeah, y'all gave a know. warning too, so thank you for that. <laughs> right, it's true. Andrew knows this, so we just moved into a neighborhood. I have a white neighbor right to my left, a black neighbor to my right, you know, white neighbors down here, black neighbors down here, Latinx neighbors. We're like super diverse. Picked it, really excited about it. None of the white parents send their kids to the public school that is a walk from here and across from a golf course. 
I think I understand already. But I think even in that, right, even with that neighborhood segregation, when we do have these integrated neighborhoods that we really work to find and to be a part of, and we can wave to our neighbors and I say, what school do your kids go to? It's the charter or the private school. I think I'm just shocked, right, because we've worked so hard. And so my kid's school, um, which is a 90-second drive away, is all black and brown. And that just befuddles me. So any insight that you all have just based on your reporting so far? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, a constant theme for us, and it has been in, in, in both seasons. And in this season, you will actually hear a parent say, why doesn't anyone want to be with us? Why does anyone want to be with us? And she's talk, she, this is a black mother talking about the fact that what the opposition to diversity planning process seemed to represent was people just recoiling at the idea of sharing space, sharing classrooms, sharing neighborhood with black people. Mm-hmm. Now, I do think it is it is more complicated than that. And at some levels, it's not, <laughs> right? There's a theme that I think we're going to come to in the last episode. You know, we can get really sort of in the weeds or in the sky about integration and segregation and why people do this and why people do that. But at the end of the day, what we have to really come to grips with is that classrooms and schools with black people, the assumption is that they're inferior. Mm-hmm. The assumption is that the, inf- that the education that they're providing is inferior. The assumption is if you want a good education, you have to be next to a white body or at the very least a non-black body. Mm-hmm. And that's really difficult to hear, but it's something that I think is pervasive in New York City and across the country. And it's something that's not only internalized by white people and non-black people, but I think by black people as well. And so, you know, a big part of this season is not only asking why are people not coming to schools on the South Side where you have a predominantly black neighborhood, but also why are predominantly black schools persistently struggling and so, yeah, I, I don't know if I have a nice, neat answer for you, but mm-hmm. uh, it, it is one of the themes that we explore in this season. And I think one that we're always, that we're constantly trying to come to grips with. And as, as a black parent myself, and as someone who has navigated those issues, it's something that I ask myself every day. Mm-hmm. The, the first half of the season plus is, is great. Uh, it's another, you know, wonderful contribution i think to the conversation the first season was amazing and this is this is it too i really appreciate the the living into the nuance the you know the idea that Absolutely. there is that there are not simple answers to any of these things that housing is a problem and schooling is a problem and you know we still have to try to fix both of them that integration is potentially powerful and potentially harmful and we have to kind of deal with both of those things that you know the the power of community um, and, and coming together, I just feel like you guys do such a great job of, of leaning into all that and really, uh, yeah, grateful that it's out in the world and people can listen to it and encourage everybody to go listen to all the episodes and, and the last couple that are coming out soon. Thank you all. We're grateful that you, that you all listened to it and took notes and yeah. came with those questions. You, you have no idea what that does for us. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing that people like actively listened, you know, <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna cry. <laughs> it sounds sounds like there's 32 districts, so you got about another 30 seasons uh, to go. And uh, bite your tongue, <laughs> <laughs> shut go, your mouth. Come back on when the next one's here. We'll look forward to hearing about it. Thank you so much. So Val, what did you think? Oh man, like always, I'm always left with like lots of learning um, from all of these episodes and thinking and reflecting and just grappling with, I think, just the fullness of what we're working with when it comes to creating integrated justice-oriented spaces, right? Because it's not enough for us to be in the same city block as Queens has taught us, right? Right. There's still a lot of work to do to make them justice-oriented spaces. One thing that I want to talk about is like knowing the history of an area and 
how it's very easy to move in. <laughs> okay, I'm talking about myself. This is this is a mirror. <laughs> yep. Yep. It's very it's very easy to move into an area and just make assumptions about why things the way they are, or make assumptions that people haven't been working to change the conditions that are there. And so, yeah. my school district in Florida, like we definitely needed to diversify the teaching population, and I thought that was going to be really easy. What I did not know is that we were under a consent decree. I think it was up until 2006. And then there was a lot of distrust, obviously, from members of the Black community with how well the school district would educate the children of the Black community. And so, you know, I'm I'm from a different part of Florida. I move in. I'm like, yeah, let's do this. I've got the answer. More Black teachers. That's right. Right. That's an easy fix. And I just naively went in just not knowing about all the work that had been done before and all the harm that had been done before and just thinking like, I can fix this by myself. (laughs) All I have to do is use my voice and I I can fix this. And so I think, was it Mark who talked about like knowing the history of an area or being curious about the history of an area and knowing like the folks who have done the work before you and having that historical knowledge of the area and the work that had been done. So I want to encourage folks to really spend some time inquiring about like, why is the school district or this neighborhood the way it is? Like what happened? Because there is going to be a story behind that. These perfectly manicured neighborhoods don't show up just out of nowhere. Um, These gated communities don't just show up out of nowhere, right? Right. There's intentional design policy, things that made them so. And so knowing that I think helps people understand what they're up against and, and the work that has been done and the work that needs to be done. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And it's easy to think about, you know, oh, I, ju- I just arrived. So like, I must be the first person to look and see that there's a problem here. Right. Maybe I'm the only one who sees this. <laughs> right. right. Like, so, so maybe I do need to speak up and, and, and there is value obviously in speaking up. But I mean, I think even, so I'm, you know, moved back to the neighborhood where I grew up, certainly have like some kind of historical context and understanding of the neighborhood. But even then, coming back here that there's like a, a whitewashed version of the story that gets told mm-hmm. that it's even if I, you've been in a place for a long time I think there's like still work to do to then go out and learn like what's the real history what's actually happened here who are actually the voices who maybe don't get elevated who maybe aren't the ones that make this nice neat story that shows up mm-hmm. in a magazine profile of a neighborhood but who are the people who are out kind of like actually doing the work and I've, I feel like I've spent a lot of time even just in my own neighborhood that I feel like I know really well learning and unlearning so many things about yeah. about the past. Well, I can guarantee there have been marginalized vo- voices that have spoken up, right? right? I can guarantee because as we know, and I th- hope continues to be a running theme through all of the conversations that we have, black and brown caregivers love their kids, want the best right. for their kids, don't want shortcuts for their kids. Right, right. we know this. So we know that folks were were speaking up in spaces where right. their children aren't being served. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot tied up in that. Yeah. You know, one one piece of it is the way that we white and otherwise privileged folks are able to kind of manipulate the system mm-hmm. to actually get better quality for our own kids to, mm-hmm. you know, use the school choice processes or the charters or the magnets or, you know, whatever the kind of tools are in your district to get into a place that is actually probably doing a pretty good job of serving your white kids, mm-hmm. at least academically. And then there's, yeah, there's the lack of relationships. There's a lack of yeah. understanding and this narrative that that black and brown folks don't care about education that then, you know, kind of gives this permission structure to be like, well, I, I care about education, so I know it's best and I'm going to come in and right. know, I'm brand new here. And the problem is that I have not yet been in your school. The right. reason your school is not great <laughs> is because I have not yet come and, <laughs> you know, be, bestowed my, 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 what Mark talked about, like white sensibilities on your school. Mm-hmm. And that's why it has not been successful yet. Yeah. No, that sounds like a hot mess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it sounds like the truth. Right. It sounds like the way some parents approach, unfortunately, even with the best intentions, some of these integration efforts. Right. Right. And I think that's why it's essential that you need a community to help be a mirror to how you're showing up. You know, you need some other folks to say, hey, you know, (laughs) I need you to slow down a little bit or I need you to like listen a little bit to what is happening. Right. Redirect that enthusiasm right. in, Correct. in a more helpful way. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and that piece of kind of white parents able to get what they want, 
or privileged parents able to get what they want that I think, you know, we talked about in the in the conversation about, you know, District 15 had this like interest convergence that mm-hmm. there were a lot of folks with a lot of, you know, from a, a lot of varying backgrounds with a lot of different amounts of kind of social capital who all felt like things weren't working exactly the way they wanted it to. Mm-hmm. And then you end up in this place here where you've got this kind of enclave of folks who are like, no, actually, things are fine for me. And those right. are the folks with the most kind of uh, unearned power and, and capital. And they're sort of like, yeah, sure, like I, we would like better schools. But like, don't try to fix it in my Like, fix them. Yeah, fix them. Right. We can right. leave us out of this. Now, you said, like, don't fix this in my neighborhood. And I will tell you, I need a, I need a white secret because it seemed <laughs> like you and Max knew what was going on. And I did not. What is NIMBY? <laughs> yeah, NIMBY. Not in my backyard. Ah! Uh, yep. Ah! Yep. And it, ah. Uh, yeah, I think you, you see it all over the place. <laughs> NIMBYism. The like progressive ideals are worthwhile, but not Ooh. if they affect me at all, right? Oh, I'm we should that. definitely have renewable energy, but not if it means a windmill that blocks my view of the ocean. We should definitely have mm. integrated schools, but not if it means my kid doesn't get the mm. um, you know extra special double advanced honors version of school. We should mm. definitely have more affordable housing, but you certainly can't put it anywhere near my house. That is the kind of yeah, nimbyism. You should not teach me a new word you don't want me to use because <laughs> literally yours. every it other, every, every other episode, every other episode, I'm like, Mm-mm, look at that sounds nimby. like some That sounds like nimbyism over there. <laughs> and yep. you know, I'm glad we can we can laugh together and still understand um, just the seriousness of what we are trying to accomplish. And it's my hope that people are pausing to reflect on their own actions and their ideas and how they might be showcasing nimbyism. And I think I think folks probably assume like I can't I'm not I certainly am not doing that much harm. It's just my kids elementary school, it's just my kids right. middle school, it's just my kids yeah. high school. It's just like I'm not doing that much harm. You know, I'm just looking out for my kid. And I think we just have to expand the ways in which we imagine the future where it's not just looking after my kid. It's how do we look after all the kids? Like literally all the kids can win. They can right. all win. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I loved that, that, that Mark was talking about of kind of the, the ripple effects, you know, the, these small choices that parents are making, these small decisions, these small policy decisions that get made at a community education council meeting with 30 people. Yeah. That 50 years from now, like what what path have they set us on? What are the ways in which that ripples out into the future? And yeah. kind of what responsibility do we have to engage, to show up, to speak up, to to you know be a voice for justice, to be a voice for positive change? Because on the one hand, no one person is going to solve this. Certainly, you know, me saying that I'm in favor of a diversity plan does not by itself, you know, solve racism in the country. Right. And there is this way in which all the decisions we make have this ripple effect into the future. And I think we have to be, yeah. have to like carry that, the, the burden of that responsibility and take that seriously. I was able to listen to Dr. Hassan Jeffries recently and something that he said that really stuck out to me was, you know, we are not responsible for the past, but we are responsible for the future, right? So every choice that we make, every decision that we make, um, it matters and how we shape the world moving forward. And I think that's just something important to consider. Like, how can you leave this place better? Yep. That's what we're trying to do here, Val. That's right. Some other people who are trying to leave the world better in in yet another incredibly well-placed segue. Yes. Are some students uh, in New York City, uh, the Miseducation podcast. We had them on uh, a while back. They have a new series out that is called Keeping Score. Set in one building. It's called the John Jay Educational Complex, um, which just says a whole lot right there. It's a whole lot. It's one big brick building in Brooklyn that has four separate high schools inside of it. Each school, they're all on their own floor and they all are kind of totally separate universes with different Hmm. demographic makeups and different focuses. But they have a volleyball team and uh, these students put together a very compelling podcast about, you know, what the promise is of sports as a tool for integration. And so we're going to take a little mm. listen to a preview of that. Encourage folks to go and listen to that. Go students! 
The New York public school system has been called the most racially segregated in the country. So many kids want to make a change. But a high school girls volleyball team is redefining what it means to play together. I want this to work, I really do, because it has the potential to be incredibly anti-racist. From WNYC Studios and The Bell, it's Keeping Score. Listen to this special series on the United States of Anxiety, wherever you get podcasts. So yes, go check out the Miseducation podcast. Search for United States of Anxiety anywhere you get your podcasts. You can get the School Colors podcast in the Code Switch feed. And you can always get our podcast right here on our own feed, where we will keep having these conversations. We will keep trying to find some joy. And it is still our summer break, but we will have a few special treats coming. Yeah, we will. Starting in July, we are rerunning our Between We and They series, so be on the lookout for that. And we'll be back in the fall with a whole new season and all sorts of great new conversations. Can't wait. Make sure you subscribe to our Patreon. It helps make this podcast go and we want to keep going invite friends to listen share the study guides we want this conversation to continue to spread out patreon.com slash integrated schools we'd be grateful for your support and val i am so grateful to get to continue to be in this with you as i try to know better and do better until next time which is not too long Right, what's that um, um, <laughs> Phil Oaks, Love Me, I'm a Liberal? Know that song? No. <laughs> oh, yeah. You should. Right. It's from 1960-something. It's called Love Me, I'm a Liberal, right. and it, uh, it, it slaps, as they say. Okay, all right. <laughs>